shaka, hooka, 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 shaka, hooka, 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 I can't shaka, stop hooka, this hooka, feeling hooka, 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 deep inside of me. Girl, you just don't realize what you do to me. Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is August 9th, 2019, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Hooked on a Feeling, Opioid Use and Misuse Three Months After an Emergency Visit for Acute Pain. And our guest skeptic for this S-Gem hot off the press is Dr. Corey Heinz. Corey is an emergency physician in Roanoke, Virginia, and he is also the CME editor for Academic Emergency Medicine. Welcome back to the S-Gem, Corey. Thanks, Ken. Always glad to be here. Well, we're recording this in August. It's summertime, and I'm doing my annual camp doctor volunteering. So if you hear some camp sounds in the back, it might be nature. It might be campers. Uh, I apologize for that. And also, you know, I'm working off the uh, camp uh, Ethernet here, so we'll have to see how well the audio quality is. But I hope everybody understands. And fun fact, I actually did my first episode of the S-Gem seven years ago at this camp, sitting out over the lake, it's Canoe Lake, and I recorded my first two podcasts here in advance before I launched the S-Gem. Did you know that, Corey? I did not know that. That's pretty awesome. So full circle today. Well, I was I was kind of um, wondering, should I actually tell people that? Because, you know, you go back and you listen to the first episode or two, and I'm like, ugh. Did I actually sound like that? <laughs> you know, so hopefully the S-Gem has gotten better and better with each season, but it's painful to go back and listen to the first one. Anyways, why don't we start this one with a case? All right, so you are taking care of a 56-year-old woman who presented to the emergency department with a Jones fracture. During your discharge discussion, you offer her a prescription for oxycodone acetaminophen, and she gets a worried look on her face and says, Doc, I try to stay away from those medications. What if I get hooked? You realize you're unsure what to tell her about the chances of continued opiate use after an initial prescription. Well, opioid use and misuse has increased greatly in the past 15 years, but opioid remains a mainstay of treatment for acute pain. Some had identified the 2001 JCO for making pain the fifth vital sign in an attempt to address the oligoanalgesia issue as part of the opioid misuse problem. ED physicians are among the most frequent prescribers of opioids. Attempting to decrease a patient's pain to zero is certainly well-intentioned, but you have to ask yourself how many patients are being harmed by such a goal. Another question you need to ask is do patients want their pain to be eliminated at the expense of the level of awareness and understanding why they are in pain? We have all had patients who express concern about opioid use, like the case you just presented, Corey. The literature has shown that more educated patients would rather receive less opioids and live with some pain compared to less educated patients. Several studies have looked at opioid use after an initial prescription, but many of them included a large number of patients with prior substance abuse or used prescribing databases to extrapolate recurrent use as a surrogate for misuse. The American College of Emergency Physicians, or ASEP, has a clinical policy regarding prescribing of opioids for adult emergency department patients that was published way back in 2012, so it's seven years old now. They suggest that opioid use be carefully individualized and time-limited, that opioids best left for patients with severe or refractory acute pain 
and that exacerbations of chronic pain not be treated with opioids. All right, Corey, what's the clinical question for today's podcast? What is the incidence of opioid use three months after an initial prescription, and what are the reasons for consumption? And the reference? Dow et al., Opioid Use and Misuse Three Months After Emergency Department Visit for Acute Pain, Academic Emergency Medicine, August 2019. All right, let's run through the PICO, not the PICO. So I'm replacing the I that's in our PICO or PICO. That's the intervention, and I'm replacing it with an E for exposure because this was a prospective observational study looking at the relationship between an exposure, and in this case, an opioid prescription, and an outcome. It's not a trial of an intervention. And you can learn more about these study designs by going to the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine website, and I'll include a link in the show notes. All right, what was the population? Patients 18 years or older with a painful condition less than two weeks without recent, less than two weeks, opioid use. And then they excluded patients who did not speak French or English, were using opioid medication in the past two weeks prior to the ED visit, stayed in the ED for more than 48 hours. I hope that wasn't very many people. And patients with cancer pain or were being treated for chronic pain. All right, here's the I being replaced by an E. What was the exposure? Being discharged from the ED with an opioid prescription. Now, they didn't compare it to anything. This was not a comparison study. They just had an outcome. They wanted to see an outcome. So what was the primary outcome? Opioid use and misuse at three months. And I did mention earlier, this is an SGEM hot off the press, which means we have the lead author with us on the show. Dr. Raoul Dow is a professor at Université de Montréal and an emergency physician at the Hospital Sacré-Cœur de Montréal. And yes, I mispronounced that. Maybe we could get Raoul to actually say where he works. Raoul, welcome to the SGEM, and where do you work? Well, thank you for your interest in our study. Uh, I work at the L'Hôpital du Sacré-Cœur de Montréal. Oh, that sounded so much better than what, <laughs> how I said it. Well, it's great to have you on the show. What got you so interested in uh, studying the uh, problem of opioid use and misuse? Well, I've always been interested in uh, studying pain and pain management. And uh, all the, the, the approach in the U.S. of... Uh, like banning opioids uh, really got to me. I, uh, I think it's an important tool to take care of patients' pain. And, and I see a lot of uh, places that are happy of saying they don't use opioids anymore. Clinics that say we never prescribe opioids. So uh, I, I want to better, get a better way of using them than just stop prescribing them. So it's not an all or none approach. It's a balanced approach in some way where you use opioids, but you use them uh, with uh, judicial clinical judgment. Exactly. All right. Well, why don't you give the conclusions to your study, and then we'll run through the critical appraisal. Well, opioid use at three months uh, following an ED visit uh, for patient discharged with an opioid prescription for acute pain is not necessarily associated with opioid misuse. Um, 91% of patients consumed opioid to treat pain. Uh, Of the whole cohort, uh, less than 1% of patients reported using opioids for reason other than pain. The rate of long-term opioid use reported by prescription fillings database studies really should not be viewed as a proxy of incidence of opioid misuse. Thank you, Raul. We're going to go through a quality checklist for observational studies. There's 11 questions that Corey and I will go through quickly. Then we'll talk about the key results, and then we'll bring you back to talk a little nerdy. So, Corey, let's go through that quality checklist for observational studies. Did the study address a clearly focused issue? Yes, it did. 
Did they use appropriate methods to answer their question? Yes, they did. Did they recruit the cohort in an acceptable way? Yes. Was the exposure accurately measured to minimize bias? I'm going to have to say no here because this was a convenient sample. And how about the outcome? Was it accurately measured to minimize bias? I'm going to have to go with no on this one as well because, and I think we'll discuss this later, recall bias. Uh, question number six, have the authors identified all important confounding factors? Unsure on this one, Ken. And how about the follow-up of subjects? Was it complete enough? Well, 18% were lost to follow-up, so I'm unsure. How precise are the results? Due to the small numbers, there were fairly wide 95% confidence intervals. Do you believe the results, Corey? I do. Do you think you can apply it to your local population? That's a little unclear as well. And the 11th question, the final question, do the results of this study fit with other available evidence? Yes, they do. All right, let's run through the key results. They had three-month follow-up data on 524 participants. The mean age was 51 years and 47% were female. The most common type of pain condition was musculoskeletal, about 40%. Now this was followed by fractures, about 19%, then renal colic, about 18%, down to abdominal pain of 6%, and then the rest were just put as other. Patients received a prescription for a median of 30 tablets of 5 milligrams of morphine, or a morphine equivalent, and patients filled the prescriptions 94% of the time. I thought that was interesting just to remind us that every time we write a prescription, it's not filled. So they filled the prescription 94% of the time. And 79% reported consuming opioids during the first two weeks after the index ED visit. So not every patient, four out of five though, took the opioids during the two weeks after they received the prescription. But what's the big key result, Corey? 9%, or 47 out of 524, of the patients were consuming opioids at three months. Yeah, and then they tried to drill down with that primary outcome of opioid use and misuse at three months. So they had that 47 patients, which represents 9%, had consumed opioids in their prior two weeks when they phoned them and they contacted them at the three-month mark. But how did, how did that break down? Well, 34, or 72%, used them for their initial painful complaint. Nine, or 19%, used them for new, unrelated pain. And four patients, or 9%, used them for another reason, which they categorized as misuse. Or that comes to less than 1%, four out of the 524. Yeah, I think that last part is really important. You know, we, we say it was 9% for another reason, but that was four out of the 47, but it's four out of the 524. So that works out to 0.7% percent, less than one percent as you uh, mentioned, and all had consumed opioids within the last two weeks of the index visit. Patients who consumed opioids within two weeks of the index visit were 3.8 times more likely to consume opioids at three months than those who did not. All right, well those are the key results we wanted to go through. Now it's time to talk a little nerdy with Raul and ask some questions about his team's study. All right, Raul, we're going to go through five questions. Is that okay? You still online? Yeah, still online. All right, here we go. Five questions for you. We're going to get full-on nerd. First one is about convenient sample. You commented that this was a convenient sample, and there was no way to determine the number of patients not identified. Can you discuss how this might have affected your results? 
Well, I understand what most said that was a, a big problem. We didn't have enough money to, to, to monitor every patient and to be sure that we had a, a complete sample. But we did recruit 24-7. And also, right now, we got funded by the Canadian Institute of Health Research to do the same study in six Canadian centers. And we now have the money to monitor every emergency visit. And we know that the patients are, are the same. We're getting the same characteristic as the ones that we have in our study. So I, I think it didn't change much the, the fact that we had a convenient sample. Well, I think it's an important point to make. You know, we're, we're doing a structured critical review and some people take criticism as something negative. Research takes place in a practical environment and sometimes funding will dictate how you can sample your patients. And so it has to be convenient. And it just represents a limitation in how we interpret the data, not necessarily a negative criticism of the study design. It's just a reality. So thanks for clarifying that. And yeah, I like that you can say that the patients that were in your study were similar to other studies, implying that while there may have been patients missed, there's, there's a less, lesser possibility that they're a drastically different set of patients in some way. So our second question is about the refusal to participate. A significant number of potential patients refuse to participate. No data is presented regarding prior use of opioids in these patients. Is it possible that these patients were more likely to have had prior use or misuse, and how would that have affected the interpretation of the results? Well, you know, we, again, we didn't have funding to, to go back one year to see if they had, uh, if they had used opioids before, but I, I really don't think it would have changed much because something we didn't report in this study, but when we asked patients why they didn't want to participate, most of them were just saying, I've got too much pain. I've got too much, too many appointments to do. I, I don't have the energy to do this. So most of the time, the refusal was really because they were in too much pain. So I don't really think it would have changed much uh, as far as results. This is one of the benefits of actually talking to one of the authors on the SGM hop, somebody who was involved in writing the paper. And there are things that don't end up in the final manuscript, things that are excluded through the editorial process. So just knowing that a number of patients decided not to participate for various reasons is very helpful. So I appreciate that, Raul. I'm going to move on to the third point, and this is about loss to follow-up. This is another issue that we recognized, and we usually like to see less than 20% loss to follow-up, and you had 18%. And I learned from a very smart physician, Dr. Heather Murray, who knows a lot about evidence-based medicine, that when the effect size is smaller than the loss to follow-up, we should be more skeptical of the results. Do you have any information on the characteristics of those patients who are lost to follow-up compared to those patients who actually completed the study? Yeah, we, we looked at that specifically, um, and, and the patients were very similar. Statistically, they were like uh, two years younger I mean, they were 48.5 years uh, compared to 50.8. I mean, it's not a, really a clinically significant difference. But for all the rest, the patients were, that we lost the follow-up were very similar to uh, the patients that uh, were included. Excellent. Thank you. Okay, so our fourth question is about recall bias. This is a form of cognitive bias. It has been defined as a systematic error caused by the differences in the accuracy or completeness of the recollections retrieved or recalled by study participants regarding events or experiences from the past. Is there any concern that the results are limited by recall bias? Well, if it was other medication than uh, opioids, if it was like acetaminophen or something like that, I'd say yes. But opioids, especially these days, 
everybody has heard about opioids. When somebody gets prescribed an opioid, it's, it's something special if you want. So I'd be surprised that patients don't remember uh, taking an opioids in the last two weeks. I think one of the other ways I was uh, thinking about it is a form of self-report. So one of the things that, that you asked in your follow-up survey was reasons for use. And more so than just remembering whether they use them, I, I wonder about patient self-reporting and not being either truthful or sort of smoothing over their reasoning. Yeah, I'll join in there with you, Corey. I think what you're getting at, that patients might self-report to project themselves in a better light to the outcome assessor that, yes, I was taking it for the painful condition that I originally presented with, or I have new pain and may be less likely to volunteer that they were misusing it. Is that what you're getting at, Corey? Sure. That's exactly what I'm getting at. Yeah, that's always a possibility. It's just that the way we presented it, when we called them, we said, well, we're just following up uh, and ask a few basic questions. And then the first question was just, did you take opioids in the last two weeks? And and we recorded that answer. Then we asked, did you take it for the same pain that brought you to the ED? And it recorded that answer. And then we asked, did you take it for a, a new pain? And then we recorded the answer and then we stopped there. And we saw that some patients, the research assistants did a lot of these calls and where I, and I work in the same room and I heard the answers. And you said a lot of them wanted to add something, you know, just afterwards, change some answers or things like that. So I think it was a way of not making it, it comfortable to say the truth, you know, without judging or asking them after or afterwards, why did they take it? So I, I think the answers were truthful. Yes, there could be some people that were uh, misusing. Maybe we are underestimating it, but I don't think it's by much. Well, that's interesting, sir. Yeah, no, I was going to say, Corey, I appreciate your your faith in uh, self-reporting. Uh, maybe I'm just a little bit more skeptical, and I think that it can introduce or it could have introduced some bias into the study, whether how much and whether that would be you know, statistically significant or significant clinically. Of course, I don't know, but I do think that um, I am skeptical that some patients may report selectively. Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm a little comforted by the fact that you didn't specifically ask them if they used it for a different reason, at least initially. And I think if I understand what you asked, it was it was a sequential questions. Did you use them for the initial pain? Yes, no. Did you use them for a different pain? Yes, no. And you didn't directly say, did you use them for something else? Exactly. And the first question was, did you use opioids in the last two weeks? Yes, no. It was no. And it was it was asked in a very uh, ordinary fashion, you know, like uh, like the same thing as, uh, did you go back to work? Uh, you know, how's your level of pain? Uh, things like that. But even, we didn't touch to, as far as, we didn't ask any question about pains before we asked that question. It was just ordinary question, like, did you go back to work? Uh, things like that. So we tried to make it as comfortable as possible. And yes, it, it can certainly be uh, reporting bias, but you know, the, the, the amount of uh, pain that we described at three months is very similar to the amount of chronic pain described in post-trauma uh, uh, studies. And so if it was very, very different, I'd be worried. But you know, the, the amount of pain we report is similar to what's been reported in other studies. Excellent, well, thank you. So it sounds like you weren't very judgmental when you were asking the question. But part of this actually leads into the fifth point, and that's about external validity. 
and this was a prospective cohort study conducted in the emergency department of a Canadian academic level one trauma center. And the reason I'm pointing that out is because it was a Canadian study. And the joke is that a Canadian is just an unarmed American with access to universal health care. So maybe I'm looking for Corey to respond to this. Ow. Yeah, sorry about that, Corey. But, you know, uh, but do, do you think that this study has external validity to our American friends south of the border? And maybe Corey would like to jump in on this one as well after Rose had a chance to say whether it has external validity. Well, I think the patients are the same. I think, however, we we have a different approach to certain states. Like the patients, when we send them away, they systematically get the the information that we want to diminish the pain to a level that's comfortable. We don't want it to get completely away because it's useful to to keep themselves from harming themselves more. So there's a useful pain. So that's the first message. And second thing is we always prescribe uh, opioids separated from acetaminophen. So they can really optimize acetaminophen. So we tell them, you know, make your pain tolerable. Then you take acetaminophen as to the maximum dose. You take the anti-inflammatory if you don't have any contraindication to maximum dose. And if that doesn't work, then you take the opioid. So I think that's what might be part of the difference as far as external validity. But as far as use and misuse, uh, I think it's very, very similar. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll jump in here. And maybe this is going to make me sound like a very cynical American, but I know that we have a major problem in this country, especially in the region I live in, which is southwest Virginia, with opioid misuse. And I have to wonder if the level of patients that I see who have used or will end up misusing opioids is different than in Canada. I'm sure you guys have seen the news stories about the pill mills that we have, the drug companies who basically funneled millions upon millions of oxycodone pills into West Virginia and Southwest Virginia. Again, I may just be very cynical and very biased and it, and it may all be anecdotal, but I, I feel like if patients are still using something three months after an initial prescription, then the chance of misuse is very high at least in America. Well, I, I, I don't totally agree with you because, you know, patients start abusing usually unused medication, medication that's not used for pain. And our, the patients don't need that many. We published another study where we, we measured, asked the patients to tell us how much they consumed. And for the first two weeks, they consumed a median of seven, five milligrams of a morphine equivalent. And, and in those two weeks, very little. They don't need that much for that big pain. So if we prescribed smaller quantities, I think the, the misuse risk is minimal. And and choose the patients also. I mean, if the patient that was already has a problem with uh, misuse, already had one in the past, or everybody in his family has problems with misuse, I think it's not the right pill. But um, I think the problem is mostly unused. And that was the same cohort that we used for that. And that's why we we're doing the multi-center study on those two aspects specifically. And and now and now you circle back to why we have such you, you commented at the beginning about a lot of things in America reducing the reducing the prescriptions, eliminating prescriptions, etc. I think there are definitely places that say I don't prescribe or we won't prescribe, but I think what we what is more common is 
attempting to reduce the opioids that are prescribed to a more reasonable level, like you said, 30 pills, a two-week supply, something. So I think that's probably what's more common is, is, is an attempt to do exactly what you said, and that is reduce the widespread and long-term prescriptions in lieu of short-term, very selected patient population. I totally agree with that. I think that the problem is not that you take one opioid pill and you get hooked on it. I think the problem is exactly. when the pills just are left in, in, in the pharmacy or even uh, on the table and, and they get misused then. So I think I totally agree with you. What you need is data on, and that's what we're trying to do, data on how many pills patients really need. And we're trying also to get all the, uh, the principle of partitioning medication, you know, like one of the conclusion of the other paper was to say, well, you know, if they need uh, 20 pills for those two weeks, but half of them will need only seven, well, tell the pharmacist to give them only 10, you know, or hmm. so, so that 10 others are, are not going to be lying around and tell the pharmacist after those two weeks, I don't want you to serve any so they can't get to it later. So I think we need to change the way we, we practice uh, our, our prescription practices as far as opioids and give less at a time. And, but I also give enough so the patient can manage his pain because I think we're going to make a lot of patients suffer and maybe uh, have a lot of more chronic pain in the long term. I'd like to jump in and to say that I was surprised with the number of 30 was the median number of tablets or morphine equivalents, five milligrams, that were dispensed. I think in my practice, I'm probably somewhere around 15 tablets. And you were saying that most people usually only consume about seven and so that would leave a number of tablets left over. Corey, aren't there places in the United States that have state legislation that limit the amount? In other words, the number of uh, tablets that can be prescribed at a time? Yes, that's actually one of the things. I think Virginia has done that recently in terms of acute prescriptions and how much you can give at one time. From time to time, so my EMR, one of the default options is one either hydrocodone or oxycodone, and I don't remember which, and it's one to two every four to six hours. And if you just click that and say go, the pharmacy will call you and say, this is too many morphine equivalents in a day. If they were to take two every four hours, we can't prescribe this to them. And you have a limit on number of pills too. So you could be limited to only giving eight to 12 tablets for that condition. Isn't that correct? Yes. Yeah, in some areas, and it does vary by area and it varies by whether it's a true law or whether it's a, if you do this, you have to document why, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, jumping through hoops. Exactly. Well, Raul, is there anything else you'd like to say about your study before we move on? Well, I, like I say, I think the message is, you know, you, you're not, you're not going to get hooked on opioids most of the time. It's, it's rare and, and it's a useful pill. I mean, right now I have patients with I had one just, just last week, you know, had a car accident, multiple contusion, fracture of the foot that needed surgery that was supposed to be done two days after. I mean, he, he, didn't want, he, he didn't want to have opioids at all. He said, no way, no way, but give me the pills that you gave me here. It worked so well. And it was opioids. I mean, uh, people need to have some relief. I think you just need to really uh, manage expectations and tell them that pain has a usefulness, but you just wanted to make it comfortable. And then really have a sequential, you know, use uh, uh, acetaminophen and said first. And if that doesn't work, then add opioids. 
diminish the quantity. And I think we're going to help our patients. And, and I, I, like I say, partitioning, I think, is important. You know, when you prescribe uh, only for two days, well, you, you know, most 80% of patients going to have pain up to two weeks. And when they go back to see the other doctor, well, the other doctor doesn't want to give him opioids. So he's going to have the pain. So I think partitioning is a, is a good way to manage the quantity of unused. Because uh, people don't start uh, misusing right away. Huh? There's a study by Butler, and there's usually more than six months between the initial prescription and the first time they start misusing. So uh, I think what we have to do is get rid of what's in the pharmacy. And since people don't bring them back, well, just make sure they have as little as left at home as possible. Well, that reminds me a bit of what uh, Jerry Hoffman said about uh, you know opioids and addiction. And I'm, I might be paraphrasing or might be quoting him wrong. But what he was saying was, you know, somebody presents with a fracture, it's totally reasonable to give them an opioid for a short course to manage uh, the acute pain. And if they get addicted and misuse opioids later on down, we shouldn't be blaming that first physician or clinician that prescribed them. And he parallels that to inviting someone over for a dinner party and you offer them a glass of wine. Again, would be totally appropriate to offer them a glass of wine at a dinner party to someone who doesn't have a dependency problem. And then down the road, let's say six months, they end up having a problem with alcoholism. Do we go back to that individual who invited them over for a dinner party and offered them a nice glass of wine and say, aha, that's the reason they're addicted to alcohol? Totally agree. All right, well, it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions, Corey. Can we generally agree with the author's conclusions? So can you give them an SGEM bottom line? Only a small percentage of patients who received an opioid prescription in the ED will still be using opioids months later, and even less will be misusing opioids. And how about a case resolution to that patient who is anxious or concerned about opioids and getting hooked? Your patient agrees to have a prescription written and tells you that she may only fill it if her pain is severe. And how are you going to take this study that's hot off the press and apply it clinically? Yeah, well, when discharging patients with painful complaints, you've got to be aware of the risks of future use and misuse that are small but not zero, and consider whether opioids are the most appropriate treatment for their pain. And then what are you going to tell the patient at the bedside? Well, there does seem to be a correlation with opioid use for a painful complaint and opioid use or misuse three months later. The majority is for the same painful complaint. It seems more likely if you use the opioids in the first two weeks of getting a prescription. If this concerns you, you can try to avoid use in the short term and use alternatives to opioids. All right, it's time for the Keener Contest, and last week's winner was Mario Pinoli. And Mario knew that Sir William Osler graduated from McGill University and was the individual that we quoted on the last podcast. What's the question this week? Opium is made up of three main components, morphine, codeine, and what other substance from which oxycodone is synthesized? Well, if you know the answer to this week's trivia question, then send your answer to the SGEM at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool, skeptical prize. All right, SGEMers, now it's your turn. What do you think of this episode on opioid use and misuse? Tweet your comments using the hashtag SGEMHOP. What questions do you have for Rule and his team? Ask them on the SGEM blog. The best social media feedback will be published in Academic Emergency Medicine. 
So I'm hoping to hear from Sergey Motov and Ruben Strainer because they are both, you know, experts in the area of opioids and pain control. So, mm. hey, if you're listening, guys, I'm expecting to get some comments <laughs> from you and questions to the authors. Also, don't forget that if you do subscribe to Academic Emergency Medicine, AEM, you can head over to the homepage and get CME credits for this podcast and article, and we'll put the details in the show notes. Thanks, Corey, for doing this. You're welcome, Ken. Always a pleasure. And thanks, Raul, for coming on. I understand you're heading off on summer holidays for two weeks, so I'm glad you were able to squeeze this in before you head out. No problem. It's, it's nice to have uh, some interest in our study. All right, Raul, and the last task you have is to read the SJAM tagline. Now, you can do it in your best French accent, or you can do it in your mother tongue. You can do it in French. Sure, French is better. Souvenez-vous, il faut être sceptique de tout ce que vous apprenez, même quand ça vient du sceptic guide to emergency medicine. Talk to everyone next time. I said I'm hooked on a feeling.